Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Mike Rosenberg from Columbia Credit Union. Mike says they trust what they see and hear on OPB, and that aligns with Columbia Credit Union's brand. From the Gert Boyle Studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Dave Miller. It's been more than a year since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, effectively ending the constitutional right to abortion that had been in place for nearly 50 years. The decision has led to a wave of laws that restrict abortion access in about half of U.S. states. Some patients have had to cross state lines to end pregnancies that pose a risk to their health. And some doctors from states like Idaho, where performing abortions could result in imprisonment, have moved. Needless to say, it's been a tumultuous time for medical practitioners. The most prominent professional group of OBGYNs is called the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, or ACOG. It just so happens that the incoming leader of the group is an Oregon doctor. Stella Dantis is an obstetrician and gynecologist in Hillsborough. She joins us now to talk about her profession post-Dobbs and more broadly. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And I should note for full disclosure for listeners that we're having you on. We've invited you because you're the president-elect of ACOG, but you happen to have delivered my children. So thank you for that. (laughs) Thanks. Um, My pleasure. I understand that you found out that you had been selected as the next president, the incoming president this coming May, of this professional organization the day before the Dobbs decision overturning Roe v. Wade. Can you tell us about what those two days were like for you? So it was it was actually the, the day after. It was um, so the Dobbs decision fell on uh, June 24th of 2022, I actually happened to be in Washington, D.C., visiting colleges with my son. And so when that decision fell, we actually went to the Supreme Court. I wanted my son to see and experience, you know, what history happening. And then the next day, I did get a call that I had received the nomination as president-elect. It was a surreal uh, 48 hours. That week before, um, you know, I mean, I think we were all preparing for this decision. And uh, we had, you know, I'd been preparing statements for the people I lead. And at that time, it was the district um, part of the West Coast and of, you know, of of what we were going to say, what we were going to be doing after and if the decision fell. But nothing prepares you for a day like that. It um, it was heartbreaking, truly heartbreaking. How has the Dobbs decision affected the way you're thinking about your tenure that's coming up as the president of ACOG? Well, so it's a long game. So my president tenure will be a year. And 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 the, the effects of this decision will go on for decades, uh, unfortunately, is, is, is what I think. Optimistically, I wish it would not. Of course, we will be working on trying to um, achieve access, full access to reproductive health care for every person in this country. And um, we want to protect from legislative interference. So that will be a a heavy uh, amount of work that I will be doing during my presidency. I will also want to mention that I I, I will be focusing also on... um, on burnout and what is happening to our specialty. You know, coming out of a pandemic, uh, we have burnout. And um, just the amount of, uh, of burden right now to practice medicine, and this is, you know, just the tip of the iceberg here with, with legislation coming in, telling us how to practice. You know, you're seeing a patient and you're not allowed to 
uh, you know, give them the full menu of options that is evidence-based for them to make decisions about their health care um, is, really, is really hard. It's hard for our patients, and it's also hard for the providers, the clinicians who are taking care of them. A few months ago, researchers at the University of California, San Francisco, they put out a study based on reports from OBGYNs across the country. The title says a lot. It's, this is the title. Care Post-Row, Documenting Cases of Poor Quality Care Since the Dobbs Decision. Can you give us a sense for some of the issues that, that came up in those cases re- reported by your colleagues? Yeah, well, so some of it is delays of care. So if you're practicing in a state where now um, abortion, you, you can't you can't provide an abortion in a timely manner. So you're seeing delays of care. You're seeing um, uh, patients that have medical comorbidities. They have reasons where carrying a pregnancy would be deleterious to their health. They are they are having to travel long distances. Your counseling is affected. Uh, uh, our clinicians are scared of criminalization. They're scared of going to jail. They're having to balance, like, how do I talk to my patients? How do I give them all the options without harming or putting risk to my family and myself? So so, so those are the stories, you know. And then also just the fact that they have to travel. So we've got people in states that don't have access to the care they should that are having trouble miles and miles. Now, some people have the means to do that. Many people don't. So it's affecting um, marginalized populations more. And um, that's very challenging and uh, regrettable. And just to be clear, I mean, a lot of these cases, they, they point out that we're not simply talking about people seeking abortion. We're talking about the serious repercussions, say, for somebody who is miscarrying. Yes. How might that work? So so if somebody has um, a miscarriage and they need, they need care, let's say they're miscarrying um, in their second trimester. If there is not a provider around to take care of them, to help them, if they are bleeding, if there is a patient with an ectopic pregnancy and you're in a state where that is considered illegal to take care of them until that patient is in a life-threatening circumstance, the amount of trauma for that patient to have to wait to be cared for, to have their ectopic pregnancy to be taken care of, until they're in a life-threatening circumstance as opposed to upstream um, and the amount of complications that that can arise and then the stress and toll for their clinician. So those are the types of stories that we're hearing. The New York Times had an article recently and and other um, outlets have done this as well about OBGYNs who've left states where abortion is being outlawed. You were actually quoted in that article. How common is this right now? So we are seeing a lots of shifts of, of providers in in certain states that are, are you know would be called our red states. So Idaho, for example, um, I personally know a couple OBGYNs who had to think you know they wanted to raise their family in a rural state. They intentionally went to Idaho to practice, and as the climate became untenable for them, as they were worrying again about. They have young children. They can't be in jail um, for providing good care. They had to consider leaving. And so these these clinicians are leaving for places that actually we have access. You know, they're coming to places like Oregon. And unfortunately, we're leaving even more maternity care deserts out there. What are the implications of that? I'm, I'm also curious, obviously, without naming names, what you've heard from clinicians across the country who have who have made that decision. As you, they, they were practicing in places that, that they chose. They didn't want to leave. They felt they had to. What have you heard from them? 
Well, again, it's the stress. It's the stress of the day to day and the emotional, you know, as a clinician, you go into medicine to take care of patients and you develop these relationships with patients and you know you're not providing um, evidence-based optimal care for them. You know you can't. That's a hard burden to shoulder. They are also worried, again, about they don't want their kids to grow up without a mom or a father. And then uh, also just just thinking about communities. They don't want to leave their communities. And now we're pulling people out of these communities. And so, you know, in that article, I talked about a ripple effect. And there's not only a ripple effect to the, the care that people aren't getting, there's a ripple effect as to what we're, we're doing to these communities. We're not just pulling out OBGYNs. We're pulling out partners and other people. We're pulling out people that would be helping out at schools, other people in the community, ER physicians in the community. And um, and it's 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 hard because they don't want to leave. They don't want to do that to the people they've cared for for years. But ultimately, they have to make a decision that works best for them and their family. If you're just tuning in, we're talking right now with Stella Dantas. She is an OBGYN in Hillsborough and the president-elect of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Oregon does not have abortion restrictions of the kind that, that we're talking about, really if any, but we have seen a different trend over the last year or so. The planned closures of standalone birthing centers, one in Baker City, uh, one in Gresham that happened, and then the state did an investigation, said no, Legacy opened it back up. But it, it made me wonder if this is a national trend, the, the closure of standalone centers. Yes, we are seeing this in a number of states all across the country. So about 35% of counties are considered, as of 2022, maternity care deserts, meaning they have no obstetricians, they don't have care available. That number, I would imagine, is higher now as we go toward the end of 2023. We are seeing uh, birth centers close for uh, a number of reasons. Some of it may be financial. Some of it may be because they don't have enough providers to staff. And then they close. And what that's doing now to our patients in those places, it's not only making it hard for them to find a place to deliver. They're going, they might have to travel 75 more miles to find a birth center or a labor and delivery unit at a hospital, but it's also affecting the care they get upstream. Hmm. Last week, we talked about the country's terrible maternal and infant mortality rates. They're among the worst among industrialized rich countries, despite the fact that we spend a lot of money as a whole in this country on health care. And there's a lot to this. But, but in the big picture, first, what stands out to you in these numbers? Well, you know, in these numbers, what stands out to me is that here we are in a country where where we have great care that should be available to all, and it's not. It's only accessible <laughs> to a few, and it's go- the number is going down. And and what I was talking about also is, as we have these maternity care deserts, we are not making it easy for patients to get the care that we can provide in this country. So, one, uh, barriers are just insurance coverage. But two, again, if you have to travel, it's not just for the birth. We're not allowing people to get prenatal care so that they can optimize the health and their pregnancy to have a good outcome. So, and you know, Dave, you've had kids, you know how many prenatal appointments there are. If you have to travel 75 miles to get care every time you go to and for a prenatal appointment, it's hard. People are working. They're taking time out of their schedules. If you just have to go 15 minutes to get care, it's challenging to fit in. Imagine if you have to go an hour 
or more to get care. From the perspective of just your perspective, both as a clinician yourself and as the, the, the incoming, the president-elect of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, how do you think about the, the, the gigantic racial disparities in those numbers, in particular among black and African-American um, mothers or mothers-to-be and Native American yeah, the numbers are, are uh, unfortunately much higher. You know, the uh, uh, maternal mortality rate of a black mother is three times as higher than white women. And um, and it's be- it's because of access to care, you know. And we are also doing a lot of work on uh, diversity, equity, and inclusivity at the college and um, around the country. We want to make sure that we have one Patients and all populations have access to clinicians and also clinicians that they identify with. That's that's extremely important, right? Because if I'm saying something to you as a patient and you're and, and we're not identifying with each other, it's it's probably much harder for you to take what I'm saying and do it. It's already hard to to try to do things to improve your health. So so we are trying to work on that um, and uh, improve the diversity of the clinicians that are around the country. I should say we're going to be talking more deeply about Multnomah County's efforts to address. Um, some of these racial disparities in, in the next segment. The Commonwealth Fund put out a, a big report about maternal mortality a few years ago, and, and they had a really striking chart to me. It, it showed the maternal care workforce in 11 different rich countries. The U.S. has fewer providers overall than than all of them except for Canada. But we also have a much lower ratio of midwives to, to MDs, uh, to OBGYNs, than almost all of them. I, this, I, this might be sensitive because you represent OBGYNs, but I'm curious if you would support increasing the rate um, of the use of midwives, nurse midwives or, or whatever, for uncomplicated pregnancies in this country? I mean, should people like you be be delivering fewer babies in the U.S.? Yeah, um, I'm happy to comment on that. Uh, the American College of OBGYNs, you know, Obstetricians and Gynecologists, has a great relationship with the ACNM. Um, is that which American is College, College of... of Nurse Midwives? Okay. And, um, and, and you may know that I, I have a collaborative practice with certified nurse midwives where I work. I am very um, uh, supportive of having, again, a diverse workforce and everyone working to top of scope. Yes, we are looking at a physician shortage. We have people, and and again, I was talking to you about my concern about the burnout. I think one way to help keep people in the workforce is to make sure we are all working to top of scope, finding joy in what we do, and also that we have enough people to do the work so no one is overly burdened to have burnout. So yes, I, uh, you know, ACOG, we support team-based care and um, and certified nurse midwives. They provide uh, great low-risk, you know, low-risk care, and they work collaratively with uh, obstetricians and gynecologists so that when things do turn high risk, we can be there to help and support. The cesarean rate in the U.S. is something like 33%. One in three pregnancies um, are are through C-section. That can increase morbidity and mortality for mothers, particularly in subsequent deliveries. What do you think it would take to reduce that rate? So 
One thing that would be helpful is just reducing the primary cesarean section rate. And, um, and Meaning it, for a first, first birth. For the first birth, right. And so there has been um, a lot of work done. In fact, the college, uh, we have a program called the Alliance for Maternal um, for Innovation in Maternal Health. It's, it's called AIM. And uh, it has bundles that are being released uh, nationally, and they work in conjunction with state, hospitals, all around the country, and one of one of those bundles is preve- preventing the first cesarean. So it is it is about making sure that we have the right personnel available, that we have we are watching people as they labor and giving them all the opportunities that we can, so that they can have a successful um, and safe birth vaginally. Of course, there are times when you have to do a cesarean section for the safety of the mother, for the safety of the child. Um, but just trying to make sure that we are practicing um, um, to the right standard all across, and that we have we have facilities available to care. Uh, you know, sometimes it's it's people need rest. They need they may need an epidural. You know, they may need they may may need that to get through the rest of their labor um, to help their body relax and and uh, move forward. So there's a lot that we are doing. Did, um, are you advocating for any tr- changes in training in, in residency to to make this more possible? I mean, I'm thinking, for example, about yeah. about giving OBGYNs to be more experienced with vaginal deliveries for for breach presentations where the baby is yeah. right set up, meaning the the wrong way. Right, right. Well, so so you know, as as you may know, you know, breach singleton breach deliveries data came out um, that they were unsafe. But certainly, there are patients that choose, even with the data, they want to have a singleton uh, breach vaginal delivery, meaning one baby delivering breach. And there are a smaller numbers of people that know how to do that in this country. Uh, I am I I do advocate for. Um, uh, uh, inter, you know, interdisciplinary training environment. I do think, and and we do this here um, where I practice. We have residents and medical students training and seeing how certified nurse midwives and OBGYNs work together to um, provide informed care and support patients' choice in a safe way. And so, yes, we need to have uh, training so that we can support all of patients' choices and work together upstream so that. When we get out and wherever we practice around the country, because the cultures are different, that we are working together well. Stella Dantas, thanks very much. Thank you. Stella Dantas is the president-elect of the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. She is an OBGYN herself practicing in Hillsboro. Think Out Loud and OPB's critical reporting from all across the Northwest happen only with the support of our members. Do your part now and join in as a sustainer at opb.org pod.